welcome to What's My Age Again, a lifestyle podcast for those of us who are older than young. Hello and welcome to another episode. What's my age again? I don't know. (laughs) It's been a week already and it's Wednesday. So yeah, that that makes sense. That makes sense. That Wednesday is the time time to wind down. Yeah. For real. So um, at the end of last week's episode, um, I announced that we were going to be doing the true self-care episode. But guess what? We have a better thing for you today. Um, We have guest host Anna Conathan here with us for a Been There, Done That episode. Um, We were lucky enough to have her able to join us this week. Hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. Hi. Hello, ladies. How's it going? Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We love these episodes. Um, For our listeners who've been with us from the beginning, you know that this podcast is like 99% fun and 1% like just female mentorship. Mm. So we love having other voices and opinions come on board and have these conversations with us. Um, I am going to tell you just a little bit about Anna and then I'm going to turn this over to Susie because Susie and Anna actually know each other in the real world. Um, so (laughs) Anna is a writer, a storyteller, and a personal coach. Um, she loves to study human behavior and is just a lover of humans in general. Uh, she has a passion for helping and coaching her clients and she describes it as helping them find their inner superpowers. Mm. And as a storyteller herself, she loves to help them learn to tell their own stories too. So I love that. Um, she strives to help build connections, foster understanding, and strengthen communication in communities. So super fun things about her. Um, in a past life or, or more, uh, she was an actress, a comedian. She worked as a screenwriter in LA. And that's where she kind of honed her abilities to create, connect, spot the BS, and improvise. Um, I love how you describe motherhood um, as the longest game of improv you've ever played. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm new to that game, and I am learning that that is ac- absolutely accurate. Um, so Anna is a storyteller, public speaker, a coach. Again, um, her passion really stems in helping others kind of cultivate their authentic selves, their authentic voice. Um, super fun. As a Mainer, she is... Uh, Sternman on a lobster boat in the summer. Um, she lives near the beach. She is married, has a hilarious daughter. Um, and I love the description of the dingbat chocolate lab because I have a dingbat um, golden retriever. Yes. <laughs> I have a g- dingbat doodle, so I got it. <laughs> My Labrador's best friend is a dingbat doodle. Aww, they're perfect. all they're all broke, as my yeah. friend says. Yeah. The dog's broke. Yeah. Georgie was our Georgie was actually our first guest host. Yeah, yes, she, yes. she's very boisterous. Yeah, I'm sure she our listeners remember on that. Camera. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully our listeners listen past that. Yeah, so, fingers crossed. She had a lot to Most say of them day. are still here. Yeah. yeah. So I want. Um, I want to hear Susie and Anna. Like, so how did you guys connect? How did you guys meet? Susie, do you remember who connected? Was it Jennifer Edwards? I think it was Jennifer Edwards, who yeah. um, hopefully will get on this show as well. Oh, she's at amazing. At some point, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I don't even remember how I know Jennifer Edwards. I think that, I think I saw Jennifer 
for um for, for facial personal facial, facial care and also i had a like clenched jaw you guys could do an That's entire episode right. on women and clenched jaws yeah. and um that's right. She treated you what, for TMJ. Yeah, I I didn't have an official TMJ, but like there was a popping and a cracking and some and I think it was like a daytime grinding thing. One of the things that I discovered while I was working <laughs> through the pandemic uh, with my girlfriends is like we were coaching all these moms and coaching all these women during lockdown and everything, and we just suddenly realized anecdotally that every woman we talked to and even the majority of us were all grinding or clenching. And that it's like this odd phenomenon. It seems to start really happening in your 40s, ladies. So relax your jaws if you are younger <laughs> and you're not grinding, popping, or cracking in a fun way. Um, but like, what is it? And then I'd start asking men the same age if they had that problem. They were like, no. I asked my dentist about it. He's like, yeah, it's very common to middle-aged women. I'm like, what is it is because that? they're also unhappy? We're <laughs> <laughs> ah, also damn stressed. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. So needless to say, I started seeing Jennifer for my facial and for neck and jaw massage. And then she, I think, moved her, yeah. her, she either closed her practice or moved. And I was like, how dare you? Because when I get, when I get connected or attached to someone who's like my person, like I don't yeah. change my dentist unless he quits. I don't change my hairdresser unless they flee. Like I stay with people forever. And it's like, how could you do this to me? Like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you to Susie Quill and that will change your life. And in fact, it did. And that was like, years ago that was years, years ago? ago four years ago that's, I, don't that's even know. I mean it was before it was pre-pandemic so oh yes I mean I think and even before like- that because I was seeing you as like a side dish yeah. and then when I started doing the coach program when I was doing that coach training program in New York I made an appointment with Susie every month for the week after my it was like a low residency program where we'd uh, do classes on zoom and training on zoom and then we would go to New York for a full weekend once a month and do like intense coach training and like intense exercises. And it was like two straight pack days and I would drive to New York and drive back and I would come back Crazy. so stressed that no I would kidding. just roll in hot into, yeah. Susie, into Susie's <laughs> studio. And so then I started seeing you every single month Yeah, and then the pandemic happened and I was like, Jesus Christmas, what? <laughs> <laughs> is the universe keeping me from self-care yeah so, yeah 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 that was rough that was rough yeah. having to uh take a step back or not having to take a step back being forced to take forced. a step back forced yeah to, yeah yeah um they threatened us with um I don't know about other service providers but for massage therapists they threatened us with a ten thousand dollar fine if we were reported open if we Ouch. were seeing people, yeah, wow, yeah, that's rough. during the pandemic, so it's closed for a while. But yeah, that's how. I mean, it's been like probably five years now that we've been working yeah. together. Yeah. yeah, it's such a common theme with Susie. Like, you start to go see her, and your life just changes. Oh gosh. Well, I think for Susie, it's like <laughs> my experience of Susie, and I wouldn't be surprised if this was other people's experience of Susie. Is, is that she's just she's so much more than a talented body worker. She has an incredibly open heart and mm-hmm. um, is incredi- incredibly available. She has an incredible range for people's um, experience. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have, she has held a lot of emotional space for me. I feel like I can tell her anything. Um, I feel 100% safe on her table. Mm-hmm. And the only other person who I'm that close to being naked with is my husband, you know, like, yeah. and, um, and I just feel like, like I've known her 
you know, like I already knew her and I've known her and I, I trust her implicitly. And then also like, um, I don't know, like I'm so, there are times when I'm quiet, rarely when, when I have a massage with Susie, but I'm, but I'm like so interested in like who she is and what she thinks. And we talk about wacky shit. And, and then there'll be times when I go in and I'm just a hundred percent myself with Susie, which is not super rare for me, but it's nice when I can meet somebody that I'm like, Oh, okay, we don't even have to do a dance here. I can just roll out the carpet and she's Mm -hmm. gonna be okay with it. And one of our early appointments, um, I had horrible gas while I was getting my massage. (laughs) I told her that when it came in, I'm like, I almost canceled because there is like noxious fire shooting out of my (laughs) ass. And we got, we usually have a pregame before the, before the massage and the treatment, like, what do I need? Or what do I perceive I need? What what is my body saying? Whatever. And I'm like, look, I've got this thing going on. And we were calling it hot farts. Hot so when farts, I paid her, yeah. when I paid her on Venmo, like I just usually pick a theme from the session, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Hot farts." Here's your money. <laughs> like, yeah. And so I really don't That's think there's anything that I, that I wouldn't tell Susie because I don't think I've ever held anything back. Mm, yeah, yeah. I appreciate yeah. that, and I am honored to be a person that you feel safe around. Like that's that's my top priority with my clients is just allowing them, giving them the space to feel themselves so they can feel safe around me. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I remember, I remember gas, one point. Gas and all. Gas and all. I remember at one point we were getting to know each other, like you were checking in with me about something and I was like, Susie, know that I will always tell you mm-hmm. exactly what I think and exactly what I need. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that is quite as good. Good at that as you are. No, it's, it's so true. I, I, you know, and I myself am guilty of being on somebody's yeah, table. Yeah, that's such a talent and right? a skill. And I've been, I've been on tables before where like something hurts or something's not deep enough or, some, you know, I'm uncomfortable and emotions coming up and I just kind of like squash it down. I don't want to like inconvenience the practitioner, which is so ridiculous because I would want my clients to tell me if I needed to adjust something. So anyway. Um, yeah, I love that's I, next week's episode. I really love that about you. Yes, it is. Next week's episode is <laughs> speaking it's up. The real self care, which is like speaking up for yourself. Yeah. Yes, I think at, being able to articulate what you want. I think the secret though is like being able to articulate what you need or what you want. Mm-hmm. And the risk is obviously that you're exposing yourself, but also like if you're willing to hear no, which I'm mm-hmm. willing to hear, um, I get to ask and you get. To respond right so right, right. Like, i could say hey Susie, do you mind if like we don't use a sheet and i just go completely naked then Susie gets to be like no i'm a big fan of the sheet <laughs> yeah that's regulation right right, right. Oh, okay. I'll figure that out you know all right fine exactly yeah awesome yeah. so we kind of all did a little bit of research Uh-oh. on you on you oh my goodness um <laughs> Just a quick, like, we just, like, I scoped out your Instagram. I looked at, like, the websites for, um, you know, the your coaching and, and stuff like that. Um, and so we have, like, just a few questions that we want to ask you. Fantastic. Inquiring minds would like to know. All right. Um, so I think I, I, I got very excited by reading your background personally because I fancy myself a storyteller um, or at least, um, I have the gift of gab and, <laughs> um, and I've always wanted to work with a coach. Okay. Um, and I've always found it a little bit intimidating because I don't know 
how to pick a coach. I don't know. Um, like, so the, the one question that I actually wrote down, cause this is most important to me, obviously, but was like, as a person who has a lot of interests, mm-hmm. how do you narrow things down to find what to focus on? Because like, I look at your bio and like, it looks like, you know, you've done a lot of things. You've had a lot of irons in the fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were like simultaneous or concurrent or whatever. Um, but I find myself having a lot of possibilities brewing mm-hmm. and I don't know what to focus on. And thus I don't know like what to ask for when it comes to like coaching or who to work for. Like I looked at um, one of the websites and it's like this list of these people and like their coaching specialties. And I'm like, Oh, that works for me. Oh, so does that. So it was, so it was like, um, uh, like th- the, what do they call it? Like the, the paralysis you get when you have paralysis, choices. Paralysis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how it felt for me. So. Well, I think in terms of, of my interests and it's funny when I was filling out the form, like forms are not my strengths. And, and so what I will often do is I will like cobble things together and drop them in. And so, which is probably why you ended up with way too many of my bios in the field, but I was like <laughs> trying to narrow things down and delete things. And then, um, uh, and, and I actually wrote a much longer answer, but I had to go back, 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 back. And I lost a bunch of answers for some of these questions that you asked me in, in the field. So totally fine. You know, I was like, well, I have no idea what I said, but the whole family was yelling at me because it was time to watch Oppenheimer and they're waiting on me. I have ADHD, <laughs> which, tells you, which tells you a little bit about like my, my, uh, my sprawl of interest, right? So there's like, yeah. I think people can have, depending on your operating system, your brain, your personality, your lifestyle, your income your geo your geographical area whatever you can have a lot of interests um as a kid I, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire and when I was seven I told my parents that I was moving to Los Angeles to be an actress mm, interesting. and that was the plan and con- continued to be the plan until I moved to LA to be an actress like I, I studied theater in, in college uh it was all that I was ever going to do um end of my senior year I started to panic and um, I said to my father, who was an educator, um, he was a teacher and an administrator at my high school. So I don't know, maybe I'll stay and I'll get my teaching certificate. So I have some yeah. security. And he was like, young lady, you will move to Los Angeles and you will pursue acting, which is like not often said by parents. Um, yeah, my parents were mortified when I was like, oh, so my major is now voice performance. Yeah. But I think I was so determined all through my childhood and I took acting classes and I did community theater and I did school theater and, and I just, I was really, really committed to it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I didn't shank my audition for BU for the conservatory program because I did. I'm not a great advanced planner. It certainly wasn't when I was 18 years old, but at Emerson, I got to try a lot of different things and I stayed in the performing arts department, but throughout my life, even from my third grade teacher, Karen Green Shackford, who um, was my third and fourth grade teacher, she told me when I was in her class, I think you're a writer. She was also the first person to tell me I was a character actor because I desperately wanted to be Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and she cast me as the witch, and I cried, and I cried. She was like, I'm sorry, you're too good. Your cackle is too good, and (laughs) Dorothy is really boring, and someday you will learn that Dorothy is boring, and where it's at is the witch. Right, right. And so um, I had an inkling that I might be a writer, but sitting down and staying still and focusing and doing multiple drafts, like that just never really, I really wanted to be in the limelight and moved to LA. Um, 
did a lot of things when I was in LA. I had waitressed and whatnot and worked in the restaurant industry from the time I was 12 until the time I moved to Los Angeles to support college and income, you know, spending money, all that stuff. So when I moved to LA, I, I promised myself that if I was going to go all the way from Freedom, New Hampshire to Los Angeles, that I wasn't going to do the same thing I could do at home, which was waitress. So I was a production assistant. I was a casting assistant. I was an extra. Um, I was on, like, I was on Friends. I was on Murder, She Wrote. I was on the last episode of Saved by the Bell. Like, I was on all these crazy shows. That is and, so cool. I'm in yeah. the movie <laughs> of Friends. Amazing. Um, so I worked on, I was a stand-in. Um, I was a production assistant, casting assistant. I delivered VHS tapes for the Hollywood Foreign Press, for the Golden Globes. I did um, all sorts of things. Babysat B-list actors' kids. Walked B-list actors' dogs. I, um... I was on ER for two seasons as a trauma nurse. I worked in the surgical room and I doubled for Maria Bello in, in the surgery rooms. I was That's in the so live cool. episode of ER. So I did lots of, like I was Alicia Silverstone stand-in and double for Batman and Robin. That's how I got my SAG card. That's how I got insurance. Um, and I knew that if it didn't work out in LA, because LA was in every way difficult. Mm. Everything was difficult and so different from what I had grown up with. And I had never even really driven on like not Route 16 or Route 153. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. drive when I was in Boston. And then suddenly I am driving on the interstates of Los Angeles, which are unique. And so um, <laughs> I, I got to do a lot of different things. And I thought, well, you know, if the worst thing that's ever going to happen to me is I move back to New Hampshire to become a ski bum and a bartender. The Mount Washington Valley is quite lovely. <laughs> and yeah, many yeah. Of people are still there. So uh, I kept plugging away and I worked as a casting assistant. And I, my two bosses were these two Jewish women from the West Coast. One of them, their father was a comedy writer and, and worked in a lot of uh, half-hour shows and talk shows. And then the other woman, um, she was the casting director partner. She also produced movies. And they were these, like, really dynamic, cosmopolitan Jewish women. And I'm, like, this girl from the backwoods of New Hampshire who grew up pretty darn Catholic. And they thought every story I told them was hilarious. And I had moved out there in my Volkswagen camper van with my hippie boyfriend from high school. So they thought everything I told them was hilarious. And they're the ones who convinced me to try stand-up comedy. Oh, they, were, wow. they were getting me meetings and stuff and, um, and auditions and, and like whenever they could at their office, but I needed an agent. And back then people didn't have a movie studio in their pocket. You know, you couldn't just go make your own demo. You couldn't just go make your own movie. Right. Um, we were still using payphones and pagers, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, they were like, hey, Anna, you're really funny. And I couldn't get an agent because I didn't have tape. I couldn't get tape because I didn't have an agent to get me auditioned. So I was in this sort of like this horrible roundabout of nobodyness. And um, so they convinced me to do stand up and I just started telling stories. And I got into the Montreal Comedy Festival, which was a really competitive um, comedy uh, festival that happened every year. There were two big, like like uh, Sundance or Con, like for film, there are these a couple big comedy. Yeah. So I got in and then I started getting attention and I uh, got an agent and I got a manager and um, I would have been doing sketch comedy as well with a, with a troop of, of kids that I had met in LA and I'd taken classes at Groundlings and stuff, but it takes forever to, cr- to climb up the Groundling food chain. So we just formed our own sketch troupe and then this agent friend of one of my other uh, sketch troupe members showed up and was like, I see that you wrote like half the sketches. You know, do you have an interest in being a writer? And I was like, nah, not really. <laughs> and he was like, well, you're very good. And if you have anything else for me to read, I'll read it. And so I wrote some stuff. I wrote my first feature film. I sent it to him. And then he started representing me. And then my feature film 
I ran into a rights issue because it was based on, on Peter Pan. And, and um, so it didn't end up going out as a big spec sell, which was the goal, like to send out a splash mm. property that people would buy. And so he's like, you know, we're going to start sending it out as a sample. Just keep writing. And it went out as a sample. And I was hired for a year by Disney Animation to write for them as an in-house writer. Oh, and, cool. then I, and then I was a studio screenwriter for, I don't know, maybe four or five years before Alexis was born. And I worked on a lot of movies. I got paid really well. I had very good health insurance. Um, and then nothing ever got made. Like everything died mm. in development. Oh, and it was it was really uh frustrating and because ultimately yeah. like I I am a good writer it's taken me I'm now 50 I started writing when I was really writing for money probably when I was 28 I did okay. I also did some kids animated shows um it took me a long time to accept the fact that I actually was good because I felt like I pulled something over on everybody you know like imposter syndrome yeah that's interesting we just did an episode on that yeah Yeah. and so I felt like I was really good at pitching and being in the room like my acting skills my improv skills my interpersonal skills like back to way back to the question you asked which is like all these different things that I do like in the light of day where I am now everything that I have always done is who I am yeah I like talking to strangers I like telling stories I like acting I like improv I like performing I like theater I like film like the things that I have liked I have always liked helping people problem solving like all of these things and I think that we are discouraged from exploring and that isn't certainly where I started because I was like I'm seven years old I'm gonna be an actress well for a long time I was afraid to leave LA because I thought I would disappoint people or people would be confused well if I fan is like like have you ever known someone who's a travel athlete and they play all through their childhood and they play all through high school and they go to college and they play sports at college and then at some point like very few people end up playing for professional teams out in the world. Right. Right. Baseball, so soccer, true. football, whatever. Right. Yeah. But then it's like their whole life has been this thing, this striving and this intensity. And then it's like, it's like people don't know what else to even talk to you about. Right. If I'm not talking to you about soccer, I mean, because it becomes like the identifier. Yeah. So, and I did find that when I did stop working in Hollywood, um, and, and, it, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a, a conscious choice. It was more like uh, a car wreck or, or even like a, not even a slow fade. <laughs> it was yeah. like, I had a baby. Abrupt. I had a baby and I was like, what? it was like you hit a wall. <laughs> I was like, what is having a baby going to change? Right. And, um, and I, but I had reached a point where I said to my husband, Mike, like, I don't think this is satisfying for me because I'm not doing the things we moved away from LA because Mike, Mike was a television writer in Hollywood. He's from Cape Cod, but we met out in LA and he uh, decided he wanted to go back to school to study marine policy and marine affairs. So he went to URI and I was paying for his apartment and my apartment in LA, paying our bills, paying his expenses at grad school. Like I was making a lot of money and like paid off all my debt and was like, Oh, this is pretty great. But then it just over time, the attrition of, not having anything ever come whole, you know, not, not yeah. ever, um, chasing so, the success and it just doesn't feel like it's hitting, even though people are, yeah, and, people and, you're, and you're making money. money. Yeah. And people are like, yeah, well, but you're getting paid. Right. And I'm like, yes, but yeah, but, but I feel like I'm miscarrying over and over and over and over. A little, it feels right. a little fruitless. I would, I would assume in that situation, like you're tending to something and tending to something and you don't actually get to see it whole yeah and in some cases I'd write a script and they'd be like oh we lost the rights so I'd never even get notes on the script that I wrote 
you know, like that sort of thing. So, yeah. so anyway, um, we ultimately ended up moving to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where Mike got a fellowship on the Hill working with Olympia Snow from Maine. And um, mm-hmm. and I got pregnant and I like sold a sitcom to Warner Brothers that I wrote and I got another job while I was pregnant. And people were like, what's going to happen when you have a baby? I'm like, nothing. Like, I mean, it's like, whatever, baby. <laughs> Yeah. And that's not how it went. And then the writers Her- collapsed. It's going to sleep. Haven't you ever heard sleeps like a baby? Yes. <laughs> the, last- the biggest lie we've ever been told. Have oh. children, they said. It'll yeah. be yeah. fine, they said. Or, or sleep when the baby sleeps. And it's like, okay, like you're you're supposing that I can actually relax after having put the baby down and then looking at my bombshell of a house. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. just relax. Also, Quiet I don't typically sleep at 930 in the afternoon. Yeah. 2.30, again, from 4 to 5, and then yeah. party all night. Yeah. Right. So so anyway, the, the last Writers Guild strike happened right after Alexis was born. So I got a built-in maternity leave that would not have otherwise existed. And then, long story short, like, I had all sorts of health problems after Alexis was born. I had a C-section, and then I had two breast infections that needed surgery, which was super rare. Like, the breastfeeding was a Chautauqua show. Ooh. That I had late postpartum, and I was supposed to be handing this project in, and uh, I got it done, handed it in, and then the notes I got back from them were like, "We just don't like it. We want you to start over from page one." Oof. Oh, and, I, and I was like, "No." Ah. So I had to. I didn't have to give back any money, but the the deals work like steps. So you get paid in installations for everything you hand in, and so I was like, mm-hmm. "We just bought a house. So great. So great." So I went from making $150,000, $200,000 a year to nothing, to nothing. Um, That would feel good. Yeah. Yep. And then after that, I was sick for probably five years. Like I found out I had uh, like mold toxicity. I had a chronic Lyme disease that I didn't know I had. And it wasn't until we moved to Maine that I even started feeling better or even feeling comfortable. And then while I became a mom, I was also like, trying to find other things to do in Washington, D.C., but I had a hard time making friends on Capitol Hill um, yeah. with other moms because they were all pretty high-functioning, high intense, like, women who had been partners in law firms and, you know, like, really um, not big extroverts, not huge chatterboxes. <laughs> right. Um, everyone was a little private, a little bit. A little more conservative. Uh, yeah. Um, and But moving to Maine... Um, I started to get better. I found a doctor that was able to help me. And I never thought I'd write again. I never thought I'd be funny again. Like my brain wasn't working well. I had anxiety. Mm -hmm. I had depression. My nervous system was overactive. Um, I was like sort of stuck in fight or flight. And it was a really horrible time. Like not great for my marriage, not awesome for motherhood. Um, And I just thought, wow, I've I've literally failed at everything. And I met a a doctor who was awesome and she was like, you will be funny again. You will write again. And I was like, you're no. And she wasn't. So I started performing locally around here in like some theater groups and doing some stand-up and getting back into my writing. But um, I had been sick for so long that I was like, I don't know what's next because I don't know that I'm going back to Hollywood. I don't think that's in the cards for me. Um, And I was afraid to work inside because I had... um, these environmental issues. I'd become chemically sensitive. I was sensitive to fragrance. I was sensitive to like asbestos, uh, 
you know, people's perfumes, uh, fluorescent mm. lighting. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to party with. And uh, so I was like, I need an outdoor job. And I had done a bunch of research on lobster boats because I had started a romantic comedy that took place on a lobster boat. Like I wrote family comedies, dirty comedies, or romantic comedies. That was sort of my sound. And I had gone out with this captain out of Yarmouth when I was pregnant with Alexis, actually. And I called him up and I was like, what are the odds you would consider taking me on as a tournament? Like, I'll be outside. I'll be getting, you know, negative ions from the ocean. I'll be getting vitamin D from the sun. I'll be using my body. Like, I kind of thought that could be my next level in, in healing. And, um, and he said, okay, because he, his wife told him he wasn't allowed to fish by himself anymore. And I just called him at the right time. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so that's how I got there. And then ultimately, like, as I got better, I realized other like I, everything has sort of led me to coaching and like coaching to me is like a place that holds all of those parts of me right like yeah. there isn't anything that I've done that doesn't make me a better coach as a writer as a performer as an improv actor as a you know being an actress makes you a much more compassionate human because you mm. study human behavior and feeling mm. what it would be like to be somebody else so so to me coaching definitely other people had a hard time tracking What's the weird thing Anna's doing? I was a standardized patient for a while after I was sick because I was like, these fucking doctors, they do not know how to talk to patients when they need help. So I was a standardized patient at Maine Med for like three years like, and mm. all these different things. And I was judging myself because like, oh, everyone must think I'm crazy. Like, what's Anna doing? Weird Anna. But at the end of the day, who I was at 11, talk about your age, right? Like, who I was at 11, who I was at 28, those people are not so different than who I am now like my interests my skill sets how I relate to or interact with other people it really hasn't changed Mm. yeah yeah I feel that so much too because like I I was just talking to a girl at work about this today too I was like I've walked into some job interviews where I like sent my resume in they call me to come in for an interview and I walk in and they're just like based on your resume I expected someone a lot older yeah to have walked in the door and I was just like I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> or if it's just like, okay, well, I've done a lot of shit. I've done a lot of shit. Yeah, yeah. I get it. And I have I think, a lot of interests. And I think in our culture, like it's not super encouraged. And I think we no. don't leave a lot of space for a multitude of interests. And yeah. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons we have a hard time relating to each other because we don't have a ton of interest or we're told at a young age, like, who are you? You know, one of the things I did this last year was Olympia Snow has a, an organization for young women yeah. in the public school system. And they have people come in uh, from the community, women who work in, in different fields and talk to the students. And I filled out the application and I was like, not only are they not going to pick me because uh, I was so glaringly honest and authentic in my answers. Um, like, I'm like, they're probably going to call the police and get like restraining orders around all. <laughs> Don't let this person around small children. <laughs> but, um, I'll, but I got hit, like my first, time out I got picked by like six different schools <laughs> I went in and they were all like you were just really honest <laughs> but this one school in Sacopee Valley which is like right near Freedom New Hampshire which is where I grew up uh I went to Sacopee Valley and they I asked them if they have any questions and they were basically like yeah how did you get out of freedom and stay out like they were small town girls <laughs> yeah they were like how did you get out did you ever come back 
And like, if you come back, can you leave again? And I was like, yes, you can come and go freely. Yeah. <laughs> like when you live in a shitty small town, like, it, and not that Sacobie Valley is, and freedom certainly wasn't, but when you live in a small town for your whole young life and all you can think about is getting out, like it feels like a prison, particularly what it's called freedom. And you go mm-hmm. to a two-room schoolhouse. But, but like <laughs> the idea that I was able to, to like leave the state of New Hampshire, like leave my town, leave New Hampshire, go to Los Angeles. Um, but they were very concerned about picking the right school that would get them on that path being out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I mean, sure. It may be that you pick a school that you go to for four years. You may go to your first school for a year and be like, you know what? I want to be in a nursing program. I don't actually want to be, you know, a communications person. It is okay to switch schools. Like when, when I was, I graduated from high school in 91 and graduated from college in 95. And one of the things I love about, about, younger people now is they're not afraid to make a move yeah. right they're not afraid to leave their job they're not afraid to leave their school they're not afraid to travel they're not afraid to try different things and if I had said to my father I'm gonna leave Emerson and transfer to another school he'd be like good luck you're doing it on your own yeah yeah right and at that time like you, you there were there were plenty of kids who like left their college but then they went back home it's like oh did you hear about like so-and-so like UNH was too far away <laughs> from North Conway for him, right? We're like, I don't want to be that guy. But like, you know, we have a, there's a girl in my neighborhood who I was giving some coaching support to and she left her school. She's like a really talented musician. She was in this great school down in Nashville. And she was like, I don't like it. I don't like what I'm learning. I don't like the people I'm learning with. I don't, I feel stressed here. I want to yeah. come home. She went to SMCC for a semester. She cut an album, like she made an LP last semester mm. while she wasn't in school and then she just got into NYU and she's in their music program I mean when, when her mom said she's leaving school like at thanks like at, she may have made it to the end of the semester my father would have at least made me stay for the whole year you think you're going somewhere mid-year no way she left in the middle of the year and I was like I felt my judgy gen x child of mm-hmm. boomer I was like oh that's <laughs> totally wrong and that's then she so hired, risky and then she hired me to coach her and I was like oh no this this bitch knows exactly what she's doing and I'm happy to be on the ride <laughs> yeah I'm glad to watch but it's there there is something to be said for um like I feel like at least for like women of my generation we were we I was raised by women of the previous generation right mm-hmm. who were always diminished so how old are you all so I'm 38 okay I'm, I'm 40 okay Susie, how so, old are you? 36. I'll be 37 in April. So is your mom Gen X, Sarah? Yeah. So my mom, I'm not sure. I don't know all the gens. She's not um, a boomer. No. So she is, she just turned 65 okay. in December. So she's 15 um, years older than I am. So, you know, for her, graduating high school was like the end. She got married and then she had kids. Yeah. And so I've always had this kind of struggle relationship with her where, um, I think there's a large part of it that it is it is it is jealousy that like I have been more unapologetically myself and have done the things you know like I I same thing I was like small town girl from like tops of Maine and I was like I want to get out of the state so I went to Florida for college yeah um and then I studied voice performance I was supposed to study church music and I didn't tell them that I, I changed because I, my, my voice teacher listened to me and then she took me to an opera and was like, you should do this. And I was like, okay, sure. Whatever you say, like, I don't know. Um, and then ended up going through some, some difficult lifetimes and went back to school for business. Um, 
went through got my MBA and now I work in um, defense and aerospace industry <laughs> and like and like an engineering adjacent role like literally none of it makes any sense <laughs> but you had agency autonomy and choice yeah. that your mom didn't feel she had and I mean like to some degree like we have choice when we start walking moving right right saying yes no to things right so but it depends on the culture you grow up in and mm-hmm. it depends on your own level of, 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 I don't know whether it's like a spirit that just can't be repressed or stubbornness or drive, desire, yeah. curiosity, really. I mean, I think the thing with coaching, like that I think is, is most essential is, is curiosity and possibility, a sense mm-hmm. of curiosity and a sense that things are possible. And like, it, you know, Mike and I, when American Idol first started before you guys were born, um, <laughs> we had a hard time. He had a hard time watching American Idol because he was in an acapella group in college and he can sing. I love to sing, but I'm not very good at it. Uh, 100% would have been a musical theater major and probably would have taken Broadway by storm if I had been a history major. Um, <laughs> but uh, I can't watch, I couldn't watch. So American Idol, they used to audition people and show the auditions and like, yeah I couldn't watch it either the first wave was just absolute horror like not Mm -hmm. because I like Mike was like I can't watch people be horrible I was like I can't watch people bear their desire and soul and suck so harshly and then then what would happen is people would come back they'd be like I've auditioned for American Idol seven times and I know this is my destiny I'm like it's not it's not your destiny (laughs) okay so I have I have a theory about this and I live by this yeah. I will always be honest with my family members and my friends because the only reason that poor soul went on American That's Idol is because their mama told them they're really good. And guess yeah. what? Your babies aren't good at everything. You oh my have God. to be honest. I would say to Mike, like, do these yeah. people have friends, like a best friend, like a chocolate right. bosom friend who can be like, you are so talented at these other five things. Right. <laughs> yeah. like so, but you can't do this. Yeah. I guess I, I, I always thought that the bad, I shouldn't say bad, that the untalented people on America, American Idol or America's Got Talent or whatever they are, um, I, I, I always thought they were like, I assumed that they were hired. Oh, by, you they were <laughs> I, I always thought that I just assumed that they were like hired for entertainment purposes. Like we well, know it wasn't organic. Sucked. Right. Like I yeah. they showed the auditions for entertainment value. They could have skipped them and only showed the good people. Well, and I think that's true because they did there is a level of and, and at some point apparently they stopped doing that, somebody told me. They they don't do the horrible the horrible, horrible anymore like they no. used to. But um because it's not okay to publicly shame people anymore. Apparently. <laughs> it's been canceled. One, one of my jobs. <laughs> One of my jobs uh, out in LA was I wrote uh, for a talk show called The Girly Show for VH1, and they wanted us to do man on the street interview questions. And so we, my my writing partner and I wrote all these questions, and we were very pleased with them, and we couldn't wait to hear what the strangers on Melrose Avenue were going to say to our great questions. And then we found out that all the segment producers were bringing like their roommates, their boyfriends, their best friends, like someone from work, like uh. to, to do it. And I was like, "Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> lying." Right. <laughs> they were like, Anna, you're really cute. Uh-huh. <laughs> really cute. It's called pre-producing. So you pick it out. You know, right. you, you, see it, you see it in real time. And then you're like, let's bring it back. That's what I thought those. Camera. 
auditions so, were. So while they were not actors acting badly, they were people who were actually bad, who were plucked out, and they were like, yes, we are 100% going to film this person who is like off chain confident and unbelievably <laughs> untalented. <laughs> Your intuition is good, Susie Quill. Okay, yes. <laughs> to be fair, they were probably just so thrilled to be on television. Right. They don't right. care. They don't right. care. Right, right. So how sorry, are, I don't think but I, you're also coming like this has also come from the person who has never sung karaoke, even though I'm like a classically trained opera yeah, singer. Why have you never sung karaoke? Because I like too small of a crowd. Too- did, did I get to do score study for six months? <laughs> oh my god. So that says a lot about how like that so says a lot about me. <laughs> it's your snobbery that's keeping you from having No, it's my um <laughs> yes, imposter yes, syndrome. Yes. If I, I just feel like if it's not perfect, I don't want people to hear it. I'm so self-conscious. Like I I quit my career as an opera singer because it was so bad for my mental health. I mean, I would be shaking so bad if someone had to help me walk off stage. Holy crap. My stage fright was just. One of like, my, my business partner takes beta blockers because she gets stage fright. And apparently it's very effective. I might have to try that because yeah, I get, I only, but only, only when singing. Well, Sarah, I think maybe you just, you need a karaoke machine at home. I bought Mike one for his, for his birthday. <laughs> like, I think you need to practice in the living room with like a couple cocktails and friends. I think it yeah. sounds like an episode opportunity. Just saying. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I feel like, like carpool karaoke, but oh what's my, my age again? Karaoke. Yeah. I feel like you're hiding your light underneath a bush. Oh, I love probably. that. I love an analogy. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> and I think you probably were trained in a rigorous way. And the standard that you were trained at was so high. Yeah. That like the play, the fun, the silliness, the oh, yeah, joyous it was... singing was just sucked right up. Well, and then there was like my abusive ex-husband who also told me that I was shit. So there, like, so there's like there's layers on top of this but I will that, tell that go you, on. Sarah, as a youth, we would <laughs> sing songs in rounds and harmonize. Oh, and I was a hundred percent that choir nerd from Glee. <laughs> oh yeah, we literally would spend hours like harmonizing songs just for fun like and weird songs what was that one we did system of a down like i don't even oh, yeah. know like we are so yeah. random <laughs> whatever it was it came on the radio i was like oh i got this and we both would like hit our spots and we're like yeah like put us in karaoke take take teenager us we would yeah. slay but then you become an adult and fear sets in right and oh, it, yeah, it, sure. it gets scary well uh, one of the one of the um sort of like hot coaching sayings, at least for the the style of coaching that I'm I'm trained in is um break break breakdowns lead to breakthroughs. Like whatever is uncomfortable for you, whatever is like that like, oh like your stomach churns and your body is like, no, like there's that thing that you're so resistant to or that the problem that keeps surfacing mm. um or like relationship issues that like ripple through multiple relationships, not just the one relationship, or maybe it's just the one relationship, but like the, it's something that keeps happening and, and we yeah. use the car analogy sometimes like like a problem is like um oh I ran out of gas one time right so you know call AAA you get someone to bring you gas but like a greater breakdown is like you don't take care of your car the engine uh you know breaks the wheels are coming off the fan belt is broken like you know you haven't registered the car it's not insured like you know you have pulled over and everything is yeah. smoking you're like okay this isn't something that can be fixed there is something quintessentially wrong with me as a driver. There is something deeply wrong with this car because of like my lack of responsibility for it. Needless to say, breakdowns are like, if you can be with the discomfort, if you can be with the ick and all mm. of that, 
on the other side of it is likely glorious goodness, like a breakthrough so that you stop getting hit by the boomerang of learning, right? Like right. <laughs> the yeah. boomerang of learning will keep coming until you catch it. <laughs> right. In action. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like, and, and also like shitty narratives, like something happens to us somewhere in our life. Someone says something to us that we internalize as a narrative that is true. Mm-hmm. Somebody else, like then we're looking for evidence to support that theory like an evidence locker, you know, in a police department, right? right? Confirmation bias. <laughs> Confirmation bias. Other people come and they, you, but you're not listening for any refuted, like evidence that refutes your theory. Mm-hmm. You're listening only for the evidence that you can put in the same locker. And it just goes on and on and on. And so that that story, that narrative that likely isn't even yours, that somebody else handed to you, you know, like my father, when I was little, um, I was the youngest of three and we'd have to do a lot of yard work, stacking wood, raking leaves, whatever. And, and uh, I did not enjoy it. And they always gave me a hard time about not being helpful in the yard. I was like, I was six. Have you met a six year old lady? But anyway, my father at some point told me I wasn't a problem solver. And I carried that around forever. Yeah. And then one time when I was in college, he was working at the high school and was trying to figure out the bus schedule. And I helped him figure out like how to, you know, be able to take the money and the buses and make it all work, whatever. And he was like, that solution's really going to work. And I was like, aha! <laughs> Look at me solving problems. <laughs> I am a problem solver. He was like, drop. he had no recollection of saying it. Of like, not. It meant nothing to him. And I was like, yeah. 15 years I've been carrying this vendetta. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, could, we could have an entire podcast just on the shit that our parents have said to us in passing or yep. out of frustration or just out of like pure, like, just mm-hmm. maybe even like a cute little tease or something that we have yeah. just like latched onto and created our entire personalities around. Yep. I right? fear I've already damaged my child with that because <laughs> let Probably me tell you. Because we don't know what we're like. We don't know until later when they're like, mom, well, I don't want to chipmunk face. You're like, when, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, when he was like three, it was just, I love that my son is like intuitive and, and he has questions, but he would just be like, nonstop talking. And sometimes I just have to be like, Gino, stop talking. Just give me five minutes. Like, you're coming at me. You're coming at me. Just, I need you to stop talking. I get a Mother's Day thing from school. It's like, my mom's name is Jessica, her favorite color, what she does all day. What does mommy always say to me? Stop talking. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still have it. It's in my nightstand. I hold it special to my heart. But yeah. So, uh, but don't worry. He has, he has in fact not stopped talking since. So it hasn't, I don't think it scarred him too much. I mean, (laughs) have you met his mother? (laughs) Hey now. So it's clear, clear, Sarah and Jessica, that you went to, did you go to elementary school together? We, We met when we were 12 and 14. We actually just got tattoos a couple of months ago. Um, established in 1998. Um, so we've been, <laughs> we've been friends for 26 years. So when did Susie, when did Susie come on the scene? So Susie, um, it, my husband refers to her as his little sister. Yeah. So when she first came down from up North, um, my husband was from Van Buren and he had a place down here and she was coming down to go to school. And so she was his roommate for yeah. a while um, he loves to brag that he was there to watch the whole Susie Kim love story unfold. Yeah. And the first time <laughs> I met both Susie and Kim was at their wedding. Really? 
I think. Was no, that we the might fir- have, I don't know. I can't. I don't remember. The no, we time might have gone to so dinner. I think once we did. before. Yeah, I think we had hung out a couple of times, but yeah, it was at, our wedding was like one of the first times and like the first handful of times we hung out. We were having drinks. We were dancing because Tom was DJing, yeah. and yeah, and then. Um, and then, of course, like, I, I started going to see Susie for a massage, and then that's when I, like, in one of those moments that Susie pulls out of you, I just, like, word vomited, like, my whole, like, story, and I was, like, people keep telling me to write a book. I was, like, but I don't know how to do it, and then she connected me with Heather, and and then my book came out a year ago. Yeah. Fantastic. What's your book called? Um, so it's called Stronger Than That, A Domestic Violence Survivor Uncovers the Truth About Her Abuser. Um, so it's like it's a one part true crime memoir. Like it's Sarah, that's amazing. Yeah. 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 So that's why I was saying, like, you go see Susie and like your dreams come true. Hey. Okay. I clearly need a massage. I need body work. Because I'm trying to I'm trying to discover my dreams. So Susie, let's let's get it going. Let's get it going. Uh, have you not had a Susie Quill massage? No, no. isn't that wild? Jess, Jessica yeah, lives in Georgia, Georgia now. Yes. Oh uh, yeah. I'm yeah. stuck so down here. Maybe like a live episode in Maine in Susie's studio. Like Jessica could be on the table. Sarah sure. could be writing side commentary. Yeah. <laughs> One time when I was with Susie early on, before we knew each other very well, she was she was trying to get into my left hip, I believe. And she was like, what's up with your father? And I was like, oh, oh God. <laughs> you are hiding that in your hip? In my left hip. She's like, what else Ma'am, happened to your father? So 100 100- Stuff in your left hip, and I was like, "That it's, sounds right." It's hundred percent. It sounded like tit. I, 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 I you said Susie was trying to get into your left tit. I was no. like, hip, "Not yet, hip, hip. <laughs> not, not quite." No, I'm sure. Odd place to store trauma. I'm but I sure I'm hiding all sorts of things in these these guys. Oh, hundred <laughs> boobs carry trauma. My right boob had surgery twice for like yeah. crazy yeah. like mastitis bullshit. So boobs hundred yeah. percent hold trauma. Yeah, our body. We talk about this all the time too, about like the cellular memory thing, where like your body reacts to stuff before, like your mind has any way of knowing, like really what's happening or what's going on. Yeah, one of the things I talk with my clients a lot about, and you actually never answered your question, Sarah, so I will endeavor to do that. But one of the things I say to my clients is, um, like, the brain is more like the IT department. Hmm. the the meaning making office and the heart is really the home office the body like the stuff that happens from the neck down and I'm sure Susie can speak to this but like we get messages all the time from our body and we're trained above the collarbone you know and and um, if we get a sensation in our body often at least culturally here in America if we get a sensation on our body it's almost like there's like a bank tube a messaging bank tube and like that little that little feeling we have in our breast or the feeling we have in our stomach or the pain in our hip, like it gets put in the tube and sucked up to the IT department to make meaning. Right. What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean? And then the brain's like, let, you know, give it to me and I'll make it mean something. Right. And, and, and the brain is creative and expressive and also um, constantly looking out for being killed. So like yep. whatever little message it gets, it's like, how will this kill us? Or how do I keep us safe from this or whatever it is. And if we just let, that stuff stay below the collarbone and like took it to the heart or even just let it be in our body to feel like, what does your body say? You know, I will right. ask my clients, what does your body say? Like, I know what your brain is telling me. 
and I'm, there, there's going to be some value there. Your brain is trying to keep you alive, but like, what aren't you hearing? And, and during the pandemic, I was working so much because I was working from home. There was nothing to do. And I just started a new business with um, a bunch of my coach friends. And so I was working crazy hours. I had like sciatica, like mm. <laughs> I was like constantly like a little bit ravenous, but so sort of distracted in an ADHD zone. Like the gift of ADHD is like hyper-focused. So I would take a break and then suddenly realize I had to pee and that I was hungry. And that like, I try to get up and my sciatica would kick in and I'd be like, ah, and I'd be like this lunatic middle-aged woman trying to like get to the bathroom, you know? And then I developed plantar fasciitis. So I'm like, ah, you know, and oh. um, and one of my friends, I wish I could remember who was the said this to me because this is one of the smartest things anyone's ever said to me. They said, if we don't listen to our body's most basic messaging, putting off hunger, putting off going to the bathroom, putting off basic needs, if we don't listen to our body's most basic, basic messaging systems, what are the odds we're ever going to hear our intuition? Mm, I love that's that. That's really interesting. I was like, ooh, that's, that sounds really accurate. Yeah. I'm, I'm the worst for that too. I will hold going to the bathroom as long as I can because I'm like, there's other things I'm trying to get done. And I'm, yeah. I'm racing yeah. against myself. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I have all the I'll time take care in the of world. Myself. I'm just going to do this and then I'll do me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to. And it's often for the benefit of those around us, not yeah. directly for us. Mm-hmm. Another form of self-care, ladies and gents. Yeah. Pee when you need to pee. Poop when you need to poop. Yeah. Eat, drink water. Eat when you need to eat. Listen yeah. to like, your body. Again, your- we're food motivated. <laughs> <laughs> if we're fed, we're happy. Yeah. <laughs> Most times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do that at work all the time, though. Like, I'll get into a project. Um, and, you know, so, like, I do – so, I'm an analyst for the Navy. And so, like, I get into stuff, and I'm, like, in it. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm, like – wiggling (laughs) like my whole desk is moving and I'm like I just need to I just need to find this one thing that that's causing these numbers to be off and then I can pee (laughs) and then the next thing I know I'm like (laughs) (laughs) and I don't know why I do it and then finally I'm like you know what fuck it I'm peeing yeah so Um, not right now but I'm gonna make it to the bathroom first and and that's the practice that I started like the challenge of I'm in the middle of an email I realize I have to pee like my practice was stopping, leaving the filter yeah. exactly where it is, getting up, like not completing the task, going, and then coming back and proving to myself, I can hold a thought for the length of a pee. <laughs> I can be trusted to return to this task. And um, one of the things I was going to say, Sarah, when you asked about like, like, how do you know, um, like what kind of coach to hire or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, if the coach is right for you or what have you, I think that. I think what I would say is um, I think a lot of people have a hard time spending money on themselves, right? So yeah. getting over that, that first piece of saying like, you know what, I, need, I would like some additional support in service of, and it could yeah. be in service of getting a bunch of stuff out of your way that's been in your way. Because sometimes mm-hmm. we can't see where we want to go because the road is cluttered. Yeah. Or you know where you want to go, but you know you want an accountability partner. Or you want someone who's going to be like, I always imagine myself as a sidecar on a motorcycle. Like, yeah. I'm not driving, you are driving, but I'm like, we've designed this map together and I'm holding the map. And when you're like, hey, Emma, I'm thinking that I want to change the route. I'm like, I don't we have a map. You said you wanted to go here. Like, so um, it's, it's having that support. So part of it is like having an idea of where you want to go or what's in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's in the way can often be real. Like, I would love to go live in Europe with my family, but I just don't see it as fiscally possible. Okay. It could be. Let's dance. Right. 
or um, one time uh, somebody told me that I was a total shitbag, and then like 20 other people told me I was a shitbag, and I don't think shitbags can do this. Like, okay, that's imagined, but let's unpack yeah. that. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I think it's like, people will often say to me like, oh, so you're like, you're a life coach, or oh, you're a writing coach, or you're a creative coach. Like, what do you really, do? like, what do you promise people? And mostly what I do for my clients is I listen. Mm-hmm. I believe you when you tell me you want something. Right. We figure out where you think you want to go and what those things that are in the way, you know, so that we know what we're navigating. But really what people need is uh, an hour a week dedicated mm-hmm. to themselves. Yeah. Uh, they need to be loved. Yep. They need to not be doubted or talked out of what they believe. And they need to be seen as fucking whole awesome people who can achieve this goal. Yeah. And so I like to think of swaddling, like you tell me what you want and I swaddle it tightly. And when we are together, we hold the baby together. And when you go back to your regularly scheduled life, like you've got practices and goals that you're trying to achieve, but like I am forever holding the swaddled baby of your goal and and you are safe and no one's going to be like, but is that a good idea? Like I will often encourage my clients, like if there's someone who has dinged you in your past, even from a place of love or like supposed like, I'm just asking, like, don't, don't like, let me hold the swaddled baby and I'm going to love you radically. And I'm going to believe that you are capable of doing this. And when you're like, Oh, Anna, I decided this isn't really what I want. So I'll see you later. I'll be like, hold up, bitch. You're not leaving without a full conversation. (laughs) Right. But you need to convince me that that's true. Yeah. What's the new goal then? Because you're not leaving the zoom room. or this physical room without telling me where we're heading next. Like you don't get to just, you know. So I think honestly, the most significant thing in finding a coach, in my opinion, is finding someone that you resonate with, who Mm. hears you, who gets you, and that you feel that resonant act of being seen and being heard. And you believe that that person can ride in the sidecar with you. Awesome. Yeah. Like it always feels soft when I say that, but now when someone comes at me about coaching, cause they're like, is it life coaching? Which is my favorite. And I'm like, mm-hmm, sure. And, uh, I do writing coaching, but it's, it's life because writing is also life. So it all, right. like, what, right. I, I have like a corporate badass from Capitol Hill that I'm coaching right now. Right. But at the end of the day, what are we talking about? That her father triggered her and he used to withhold his emotions and feelings from her. Like it all right. comes back right. to right. like whatever you brought to the party. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who, right. who you are essentially and then who did dirty to you right like mm-hmm. how do we yeah. know who you are essentially and get rid of the who did dirty to you but um I just started telling people like what do I do I just love them incredibly radically yeah. and then I just wait for the person to have a visceral reaction which is super fun because some people just yeah. I guess don't believe in radical love I don't know <laughs> or, or they've never experienced it so they don't right. know that it's a thing right they need to be swaddled yeah, like I, by me, by Susie Quill. I mean, who can say so yeah. much swaddling? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and I think too, like with with like, kind of like back to parenting because we kind of go back to this a lot too. Is it's just like you know our parents. I don't think we're radically loved by their parents. No, definitely not. You know, my you know my my mom's dad passed away when she was like seventeen. She was one of twelve kids in. Yeah small town Maine in poverty and you know kids they were a burden and so then they become parents themselves and you know their their love feels conditional upon what value you have to add Mm -hmm. and I think as the generations keep going forward like we're kind of trying to correct some of that stuff 
Yeah. Um, but we're still dealing with it ourselves. Well, and I think that's like the perpetual cycle, right? Like Alexis is going to be working out. I can't remember. There's a, there's a woman named Kelly Corrigan who wrote a book called The Middle Place. And I follow her on Instagram. And every so often she'll throw up like these like post-it notes. And um, what was it? I wish I could remember. Let me see if I can find it. But it was like, we're raising the child we have. We're not reparenting ourselves. And I was like, oh, fuck you, Kelly. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, offensive confronting suggestions. Like, because there are these moments where I'm parenting and I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, am I actually parenting Alexis or is this about, about me? And, and recently mm-hmm. I, I caught her making nasty faces at me in a reflection. Like she didn't think I could see her, but I could see her in the window. <laughs> and uh, I was reminding her about something and she was like, and I remember sitting behind my father <laughs> in the car when he made me angry and just being like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Making faces. She is in the kitchen window and I can see her and I, I just had knee surgery. And so I'm stuck in like, I'm feeling like rageful and trapped or whatever. I look up and I see her making faces at me in the mirror. She can't see me. And I'm like, and she's like, <laughs> like I see her free. In the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I went on this whole rant about like, you know, like if my father were here, he would do this and that and this and that, and then he would be grounded and then this, and then you wouldn't even like see the light of day until back up, back up. Like all this crap came up for my own child. I'm like, but you don't know. And I'm going to give you a pass on that because you have had a really cush life. So you don't even yeah. have an experiential knowledge of the trauma. <laughs> like I went <laughs> on and on and Mike was like, uh, are you therapizing are yourself? You <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, it's so true, though. It is. It was, oh, not, man. It was not a good look. <laughs> well, I'm sure her faces to you were not a, were not a good look either. Oh, my God. And, and the head. Like, I could just see her head, like, in the, you yeah. know, I was like, oh, my God. Like, she's so much like me. It is horrific. Like, the drama, the agony, the ecstasy. It's, it's a lot. But I think yeah. like, the, one of the things that intrigues me the most about your show is, like, like what's my age again, right? This concept of like, how old are we? How old do we yeah. feel? How old do we think? And like, I know, you know, I'm 50 years old now and I don't feel 50. And I think I told Susie this one day after Alexis turned eight, we were driving in the car and it was probably like a week or two after her eighth birthday. And um, all of a sudden out of nowhere, she goes, I don't feel eight. <laughs> I, don't. I, was like, I feel you. I feel 28 most of the time, occasionally 11. Like, but really like I'm vacillating between 11 and 28 most of the time. And now I'm 50, you know, and I don't feel 50. My knees have felt 50, um, different parts <laughs> of it feel older than some, yeah. but I wonder like your parents, your parents' parents, like, do you think they were all like, I still feel 11. I feel still feel 28 and I have to keep chopping wood and carrying water and right. doing this and doing that. Like, do you think inside of those people is somebody who feels young, right? Like that this is not a phenomenon that's happening to me. It, it's something that happens to all of us. And it's like, how did I end up here being this like whingy yeah. mom, like lecturing my child through the <laughs> window, like, you know, like I don't feel old until I catch myself saying stuff like that. Like how old did our parents feel? Yeah. When they told us they walked uphill in the snow both ways to school. Mm-hmm. Like, and were they just regurgitating their parents? Probably. Right. Probably. I, out of I can say questions. my mother does not feel her age. She thinks she's younger than me. I'm quite sure. 
So yeah, <laughs> my mom is different though. I also like going back to like how we grew up. My mom was not someone who thought, you know, you go to school, you get married. That's your life. She did not. My mom had big dreams and she chased them. So like I grew up with someone who didn't necessarily encourage direction. She yeah. was like, she modeled. She was a professional singer. She had a show in Vegas. She toured with a band. She wow. was a groupie at times. Like there's, I mean, my mom, <laughs> she's been all over the place. So I grew up in the opposite direction of like, here's a box. You, you, were, you were like, I need to get my, my plan together. Like, but I never, I don't think I ever really did get a plan together because I never had an example of making one. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yeah. It'll all work out. <laughs> Life is fun. It does. What did, you, what did you feel about that? Like, did you think your mom was cool? Were you like, like, what was your reaction to your oh. mom's experience? <laughs> she so listens to this. Um, <laughs> so my mom was definitely different than the other moms. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm, I'm a cool mom. hundred percent. My mom was the cool <laughs> mom. She was more like a friend. Like I would make plans yeah. with girlfriends not Sarah she was she was such a good girl and we would be like I'm sleeping at your house and you're sleeping at my house and we're gonna go out to this bar that we can get in underage this would be super fun I would tell my mom because she's like cool what are we wearing like <laughs> she's like that was not like no Jessica you're 18 you're not getting into a bar underage she's more like cool cool do we need to go shopping like <laughs> <laughs> that wow. was the direction I lived in. But like, oh, wow. to be fair, she knew I was safe. I wasn't drinking. I was the one who drove. Yeah. Like I was the mom of that group that will remain nameless. You, but because <laughs> you kind of momed yourself in that. Yeah, I think, in that yeah, sense, I think so. But I was given so much trust, and like my mom was just very. I felt like I could tell her anything. So on a very positive note, I could tell her anything. But I also like, even when I went to college with Sarah, we were roommates in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'm 40. I still don't know what I want to do as I have to figure that out as I'm trying to go in and like, learn how to support myself and, and establish an income that will sustain life past my stages of alimony you know like that's that's what I'm trying to figure out <laughs> and I'm like I have no idea I know how to side hustle like like any like I'm good at all the side hustles but do I need 10 of those like how do I how do I do this <laughs> that's where I'm at yeah well it's interesting because I, I like I, I think coming from the world of Hollywood and not having a regular full-time job because that's not really how LA is constructed professionally yeah. you know uh, a lot of my friends went on out of college and got like good jobs and good health care and, and the, the the first big dot dot com bubble popped while I was living in LA and a lot of my friends were like you don't understand like I don't know where I'm gonna work next week and I don't know if I'm gonna have health care and I don't, I'm like yeah I know that's literally like how I've been living my whole life. <laughs> right. welcome to my world and I think having a sense of, of, of resilience and creativity and belief that you can you know like is it a great way to live forever oh no no but when you know that you have the capacity the spirit the tenacity the you just, uh, just the, the knowledge, the scrappiness, yeah. the yeah. scrappy yeah. and hungry, right? Like, even though we may not be twenty, like if you have a, if you were raised in that in that way, or 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 you developed raised yourself in that way, that you believe that you can. I, I think a lot of people are in pain who picked a very specific path, and now they're like, "Is this it?" 
Yeah. Do I just keep doing this? Do I keep just dry humping this situation forever? (laughs) And that's so funny because as someone who I felt like I got like the most general college education ever, right? Like I have an MBA. Um, I, I have felt jealousy over the years of people who are like, I went to school to be an accountant. I went to school to be a nurse. I went to school to be a thing. And I'm just like, I went to school for business when everything is business. And so like, I sometimes I have felt envy of people who have a narrowed focus. I would agree. Um, I, f- I feel Classy. the same. Feel the same. Like, wow, you like, just like, knew. Like, That's decision so cool par- Like analysis paralysis, right? But But at the scale of my life. But when you look at the life they're living, do you want that? Like, who are you really jealous of? Who are you really jealous of? I'm just, I'm just jealous that they made a decision and I feel like I still have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what if, what if you found out they were jealous of you because you have expansive thinking and creativity and like you're, what do you work in, in defense contracts now? Is that what you said? Yeah. So I've been doing that for 10 years now though. So it's kind of op- like. You're an opera singer who does defense contracts. That's an interesting conversation. Right? Oh, it is. And I have recordings of me in, um, what will then be inaccessible voids getting ready to close them and the acoustics in there are fire. And so I just turn my recorder on my phone and I just start singing like Bach. <laughs> Cause that's what I do for fun. One of the things that I, that I pay pretty close attention to is like, who's doing the stuff that I'm, that I'm envious. Like there's envy and then there's jealousy. Jealousy is sort of like nastier. It's like, uh, I want what you have and I don't think you should have it. Like sort of a nasty. Oh, like, okay. Yeah. So whereas, not that. Whereas envy is like, oh, she gets that. That's awesome. I want to do that. Or why didn't I do that? And I talk with my husband a lot about this because like we figure out along the way, kind of what we don't want. I don't mm-hmm. like that. I don't like that, but that's actually part of the process. Like not that, not that, not that, not that. It's like, uh, when Michelangelo carved the David, there was a lot of marble he did not use. Right. Mm-hmm. And he had to like tick, 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 that away, right? And the, at the center, he believed there was something at the center that was beautiful yeah. and that he would find it. And I think life is like that. Like you're cutting away what's not the David and you're hoping yeah. to find the David in the middle. And, and you know, my husband works in um, ocean policy and environment, he, climate change. And, you know, he's not in a lucrative field. Not a lot of people care about what happens beneath the surface of the ocean. And mm. that's really frustrated. and. There are a lot of people doing flashy things in that world. There are a lot of people doing serious things in that world, getting getting traction, making a difference. And I was like, well, who's doing the stuff that you're envious of? Not because you want to do what they're doing, but like what's under that? Like what is their spirit? What is their ethos? Like what are their values? Like who are they working with? How do they draw people to them? And sometimes like so those nastier, creepier, like ickier feelings we don't like are often a message of like, I like, I like something over there. Well, what is it? Like what is that mm. person doing that I think is so cool? Well, they're getting them in front of a group of people and they're saying what they care about and what they feel. So it might not even be that you want to do anything like what they're doing, but you want to be part of a cohesive group or you want to stand up in front of a group and excite people. Like, mm. I just think that um, it's the cutting away and the drilling down yeah. like the David. I, I love that. I, I love that. that. I, think that's a, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And I, I value that. I think that's kind of changing my mindset as I'm going into the season of what's next. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of seasons, <laughs> tell me, yes. Anna, 
What has been your favorite season or age in life thus far? Hmm. I don't know why. I mean, 11 was an age I really liked. Um, And there have been other ages, but like 11 always pops as like that earliest age that I can remember being somewhat autonomous. I lived mm-hmm. in a small town, so my best friend and I could wander and ride your bike until the lights go on. Yeah. Um, like not kissing boys yet, but feeling pretty independent, tr- like some trust with the parents where they didn't worry about where I was, good sense of humor, sense of the world, aspirations for more, but like feeling safe in, in my small town. Yeah. So like, I'd like, like to learn. 11 was just like coming into your skin, like identifying cool. you. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that it was at such a ripe young age. That is a unique answer I don't think I've heard. We and, talked and about. I would say there, there have been other ages along the way. Like I would say my mid-40s solidly. Oh, that gets uh, me excited. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Because I think I just felt a lot more at home in my body. Yeah. Oh, I can identify with that 100%. And and just a little bit more grounded in the universe. Mm -hmm. I think 28 is when I stopped being a total lunatic. Like my 20s, I shouldn't even have been driving. And I'm I'm not mad about where I am now, but this year's been a little bit, a little bit tricky because like I've been having like knee pain and like um, my, my child changed their gender identity and their name this year. I turned 50. Like I've had, you know, uh, a sort of a, a, a flare up of, of Lyme and some of the mold stuff. So like this year has been hairy, but the cool thing is how I'm reacting now from where I am is so different than where I reacted, you know, yeah. 10, 11 years ago that I'm like, oh, this is just, this is just weather, right? Like mm-hmm. having been through. Like you're wiser to it now. Yeah. And, and I know it's going to pass. Yeah. The whole, the very nature of life and everything in it is that this will change. So it's like. So you've learned that, right, with age. So what would you say, that like segues right into my next question, like is there a stressor from your youth you can identify that you would love to like go back and be like, hey, bitch, chill the fuck out, like not a big deal. What would that be? I have two. One is, and this is, these are, I think they're both things that I talk to my, my clients about, but definitely the first one, eyes on your own bowl. Eyes on your own bowl. Everyone's gonna get fed. Nobody's mm-hmm. eating yours. Stop looking at everybody else's bowl. Like I imagine like dogs at a kettle, like being lined up and like my dog is always trying to eat everybody else's food. Did she get more than I got? What does she have that I don't, you know, I think that mm-hmm. if you focus on your own bowl and your own life and not get obsessed with everybody else's experience, you're going to get fed. Everything yeah. will be okay. No, I yeah. love and that. that wandering from your own bowl is only trouble that reminds, um, that reminds me of a meme I've seen this year that was like remember drink your water and mind your business like <laughs> that's a good one yeah. so and then I'd say I'd say the other one is um much of my life I have felt like uh and this is a paradox that I am too much because I have a, I'm an extrovert I have a big personality I have a lot to say I do not swallow my thoughts and feelings i have to say things out loud like no frontal lobe um so it's like I'm too much I'm too much for so many people and then at the same time I'm like somehow I'm not enough and the paradox of being too much and not enough is just the most thankless ridiculous like how can you be too much and not enough at the same time and then somewhere along the last year I saw a sweatshirt that said um if I'm too much go find less 
Oh, I love that. Merch up, merch up. But doesn't that feel like something, a narrative that somebody else told you Definitely at some point? Because be. I've been told I'm too much. A hundred percent. Like, it's like one of I, love my mother, I love my mother-in-law, but she a hundred percent thinks I'm too much. Yeah. And for a long time, it's like, well, how do I gentle myself? And how do I like, you know, like you have different containers you fit mm-hmm. yourself in for different, you know, uh, gatherings and, and friendships and relationships. And then there are the people that you can be like a hurricane with and, and I think a lot of that Susie. Is, I can be a hundred percent. I can be a hurricane with Susie. I think she likes a warning though. I could never just blow in. Like there was this one time where I was like, I don't think I can even do a massage today. I just need to cry. She just needs a weather alert. That's all. And I came into her studio and I just, I literally was on all fours, like basically scream crying while Susie rubbed my back. We did not have a massage that day. I mean, I paid Susie for a massage. But what she did was rub my back and just let me like offload onto her carpet all of my feelings. And it was possibly. Yeah, 100%. It was like uh, emotional labor. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to start offering it as a service, everyone. So do we- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Emotional labor pains. Oh, yes. Just but come yeah, cry. I think, I think um, and, I, and, I, and this is one of the things I said to some of the young women that I met through Olympia's organization. It's like the thing that you think is so ordinary about you. Like we hear our own voices and experience ourselves 24-7 every day for our entire lives. Of course we think we Of course. Because it's all we hear. Mm. But your voice, who you are, what you have to say, there's only going to be one of you ever, ever, ever in all time, mm-hmm. ever. And so if you withhold yourself, if you don't tell your story, if you don't share your voice, if you don't <clears throat> sing, if you don't let <laughs> all of that stuff out so that people like you're here with a message, like whatever you mm-hmm. believe culturally, religiously, whatever, like there's only one of you ever. You are here. You are here to do something. And it, it, and it may not even be something as important as like world peace or I watched Oppenheimer last night, like making the atom bomb. No, thanks. Right. But like <laughs> you are here for a reason. And if you withhold or try to act like somebody else, you are being a greedy bee and you are keeping the world from getting the thing that you were supposed to get when you, when they, when you came here, like you are here right. to deliver something. That is such a positive pep talk. I love it. So speaking of being here to do things what are you doing next like what do you see as like the next adventure in your life like the next passion project uh well I'm going to right now like it's so funny I don't know if I if this actually made it into the the form that I sent in but I was like I'm going nowhere for another two weeks because I'm on yeah. project I love <laughs> yes so for behind the scenes I I um I always ask this question as like what are you running running towards? towards, And I was like, well, and she's like, legit nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but in truth, you can be moving towards things with well well trapped. Um, so I can't physically walk towards anything for another two weeks. But um, something that I've been working on, and I've been sitting in my discomfort around this because I thought like, oh, I'm gonna be off my feet for six weeks. Surely I will do a lot of work on, on this writing piece that I've been working on. Um, what I really want to do is take my storytelling and my coaching and my lobstering and put them together into um, a memoir and also a, a related one-person show, like a sort of a marriage between stand-up and public speaking and storytelling called, Sh- called Shed. And mm-hmm. I know you guys probably know this because you are nice girls from, from Maine. Um, but 
the, the lobster um, grows by shedding mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's a pretty aggressive and, and likely very painful process for the lobster, but it sort of takes all the different things I learned about myself on the lobster boat, um, which chiefly really was like that I'm capable, that I'm strong, uh, that I love nature, that nature is healing, that the lobster is fascinating, that the female lobster is a queen. Uh, all these things that I didn't know and things that changed in my opinion about myself, like the strongest I've ever felt is on a lobster boat. The prettiest I've ever felt is on a lobster boat. The sexiest I've ever felt is on a lobster boat. So mm-hmm. taking all of these um, experiences and lessons that I learned working as a sternman and also being second banana, not being in charge, not wanting to be the captain, just wanting right. to be the right-hand person um, and and testing myself the way that I have and um, turning that into sort of like a story of like what we what we can learn from from transforming ourselves through growth, yeah. not recreating ourselves, reinventing ourselves, new year, new you, all that stuff. Like what if everything is just a shed? What if like, we're just mm. growing into who we were meant to be and every iteration yeah. is just another shed. So, so that's what I love that. I love absolutely yeah, I love, love it. Too. That's so inspiring, especially for where I sit in my own life right now. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, you're shedding a whole bunch of shit, Jessica. Shit. Right now. <laughs> shit. I'm sitting. I'm sitting in this pile of shit. <laughs> but here's the fun thing about lobsters: is they will often eat their old ch- old shell for nutrition. And if she doesn't eat her own, he eats it because she sheds and she's soft, and he has to wait for her to get hard before they can mate. So he will often. <laughs> People often eat her shell. How the tables have turned. This is wild. People often eat her shell for sustenance, so he doesn't eat her instead. So, so the shed that you sit in, Jessica, is sustenance, is what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah. it's. I mean, I'm growing from it. That's for damn sure. Yeah, I will get stronger. It's also something that you can look back on. These things, all these lessons, like you're saying, shed, and I'm, I'm picturing these shells are just like all of the lessons that we've been through, if we're willing to take a look at what we just shed. Yeah. Right. Because after you've shed, you're soft for a while, right? Like it's yeah. raw, yeah. it's painful, you we're know, smooth. like you're very exposed. Vulnerable. Um, and then like, I mean, people, if going with the lobster analogy, right? Like there's soft shell cra- uh, lobsters and there's hard and they're hard shell. Right. And so yeah. it just depends on what season they're in. If they're soft, and then as they build up durability, they become toughened and hardened um, and they're much more difficult to crack. So mm-hmm. like for every life lesson you learn, everything that you just like shed, you just get it off of you, you become harder to break the next time. Oh, I love that. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Very good. <laughs> just thought of that right now. Oh my God, you're so <laughs> smart and pretty. <laughs> Thank you. So you agree you're pretty? <laughs> so you agree God, that you're pretty. I love yeah. a mean girls quote. Love There's a mean always girls a mean quote. girls quote somewhere. Oh my God. Oh my God. Totally fetch. <laughs> oh, wow, you did it. I did it. I did it. Uh, well, this has been so fun. Yes. What a um, pleasure. I, Anna. Thank you so yeah. much. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun, you guys. Yeah, you just blessed us with so much goodness, so much to think about, to reflect on, to implement into our Definitely lives. Definitely I mean, like I took up, I've been like taking notes over here. I'm like, oh, okay. Look Sarah, at the only important note is go get a karaoke machine and start working on it at home. Hells yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. And my like, my my 19 month old has just started singing. Oh. <gasps> 
she's so good. Um, so, good. so she's so funny. So I definitely need to get one because she will like she'll definitely be into it. I sang for, sure. for Alexis like crazy when she was little. Now she knows I'm not good at it. <laughs> yeah, well, she thought I was the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I know I yeah I like she and I sing a, a lot together um especially like in the car or whatever and um but every once in a while she'll go <laughs> <laughs> she'll like, me I'm like don't sing over me okay now. sorry Alexis yeah. <laughs> used to just put her hand over my mouth like no. uh, done thank you uh, well, no, thank you so much I can't wait to, to listen to the podcast and keep listening to everything that you guys are working on because it was a lot of fun thank you thank you so much for being here thanks for having me seriously all right so folks um next week will actually be the actual self-care um episode so that's talking about you know speaking up for yourself um like we talked last week it's a little bit about you know i know i need to be better at asking for what i actually want you know, telling the massage therapist how deep the pressure needs to be. Right. Um, and then also like the, that there is a fine line between asking for what you want and then just kind of being an entitled asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there is, there is a difference. And we'll talk about that. We'll try to identify the, yeah. We'll try to Pregnant pause. <laughs> we'll try to about, I don't know. Is that me? Which one am I? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh, man. Anyways, all right. Well, thank you again, Anna, Jessica, Susie. As always, it's a pleasure. Um, Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Good night, all. Or good day. Good day. (laughs) Good day, sir. (laughs) Good day. What's My Age Again is hosted by Sarah Doucette, Jessica Diacola, and Susie DeLune. Editing by Tom Doucette. Our theme song is Lay Down by The Paul Houston Project. To reach out to us, learn more about us, Listen to our episodes and find links to the products we crush on. Visit our website at www.whatsmyageagainpod.com. What's My Age Again is now part of an Amazon affiliate program and may earn commissions off of purchase items from the links on our blog. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts and tune in every Tuesday to join in on the conversation.